This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Madeline Jenner coming to you from Sydney on Gadigal land. Welcome to This Week. Well, the silverware is polished, the guest list is sorted and the coronation quiches are in the oven. I think everybody's really excited. I just came to celebrate, I thought it, was, thought it was a nice picnic and thought come with my friends, meet some new people. King Charles officially takes to the throne this weekend, but amid all the pomp and ceremony, there are also plenty of questions about the future of the monarchy, the strength of the Commonwealth and how King Charles will make his mark. I feel like it's a bit of a mixed mood, actually. So on the one hand, of course, in every shop, on every corner, there are flags, there are, there's bunting, there's kind of various signs about it and you can't really avoid it at the moment. Um, on the other hand, I think what we're seeing, which is actually quite interesting, is, is some of the polls um, by you know major newspapers, major polling organisations are showing that people are not so happy with the cost in particular. Laura Clancy is an academic at Lancaster University and the author of Running the Family Firm, How the Monarchy Manages Its Image and Our Money. So, you know, the Queen's coronation was just post-Second World War. You know, there was this moment of feeling like it was a renewal, a very young queen, a very glamorous queen that kind of symbolised all of that. You know, even rationing was just coming into an, to an end. Um, so I guess there was kind of a feeling of hope. And obviously that's, it's very different now, to be blunt. Uh, you know, in the UK, we've come through Brexit. There's obviously been the global pandemic. Um, you know, we've got a government that's decimated public services. So I feel like the mood is different because the context is different. You know, Charles is being crowned in a, in a very different world, I think. And he's a very different monarch, I suppose, in the sense that people have seen him his whole life. There's a great deal known about what he thinks about certain things. He's not necessarily the clean slate that a young queen was. No, exactly. And I think that really does matter. I think gender matters. Um, you know, I think there was a certain attachment to the Queen, I think particularly as she got older, you know, she was represented as like the grandma that people wanted to look after and that people had a certain attachment to. And I don't think there's that feeling with Charles. Um, and as you said, we didn't really know what the Queen thought about anything, right? And that was really powerful because we could put anything we wanted onto her and think she believed anything. Whereas with Charles, of course, we know what he thinks about most things. Um, and that gives him a kind of a political edge, I think, that the Queen never had. That means that we can't, you know, invest in with different things. Um, we know what his values are and we know what he stands for, which limits, I guess, you know, the kinds of audiences he can appeal to. Though he's been in the role for a few months so far and we have seen him, you know, not necessarily speak very politically about lots of things. So is there a suggestion that that kind of attitude has changed now that he's in the top job? I feel like they're trying to continue the status quo in lots of ways. It feels very similar. Um, you know, day to day, you wouldn't know that the monarch has changed, I don't think. Um, and that tactic has worked for them for the past 70 years. So why wouldn't they try and carry it on? But I mean, I feel like Charles has baggage in a way that the Queen didn't. Um, so they can kind of have that narrative. And it's working reasonably well for them so far, I think. Um, but I wonder if, you know, it gets to a point where people start to, you know, rethink about who he is and, and what he stands for. Queen Elizabeth's reign was really marked by stability. There was this kind of transition from empire to the Commonwealth. What do you think is, is King Charles's mission? Well, I think that's the other thing. The world that the monarch is standing in is very different in terms of their position in the world. The countries like Barbados, for example, have chosen to abolish the monarchy um, and lots of others will, I'm sure, will follow over the next few years. 
that's another kind of moment of upheaval, I suppose, for trials. And there's lots of, you know, post-Brexit, there were lots of questions around whether the Commonwealth might kind of step up and be that global link. And I don't think that's happened. Um, the Commonwealth is is a quite a quiet organisation in lots of ways, and it's obviously got lots of problematic associations with empire. So I think I, th- I think the global thing is one to particularly look out for, because it feels like once another country goes, it would be like dominoes um, of people choosing to leave, uh, get rid of the monarchy. You've looked at how the monarchy and and the Commonwealth is is viewed around the globe. I mean, what's your sense? Do you do you feel like other countries will follow suit soon? And do you think that King Charles is maybe a, a, a turning point? Many countries were willing to to stick by the Commonwealth while the Queen was there, but things might be different now. Yeah, my feeling was always that things would change once the Queen passed. Um, I think you know she represented so much to so many people, and there was kind of a status quo and a you know, being comfortable with the status quo that was associated with her, I think. I mean, even just like at the beginning, even hearing like God Save the King, like it was quite jarring. It made you listen to those things in a new way rather than kind of passively saying, hearing God Save the Queen. Um, It makes you recognise certain aspects of it, I think. So, yeah, I feel like, well, there's many countries, including Australia, that have suggested that they might have another another referendum or might um, let the monarchy go. And I feel like the more they go, the more might start having that debate. You mentioned the cost earlier, and I'm wondering how that's playing out. We've seen King Charles suggest that people make a cheap coronation quiche as a kind of like king of the people sort of (laughs) idea, but I'm not sure if that's going to hold. What's your thoughts? No, I mean, we don't know what the coronation will cost, and that's that's part of the problem, I think. You know, there's been estimations that it's 100 million more. Like, No one really knows. They've said they'll announce afterwards, but will they announce full cost? We don't know. I mean, I think that's a particularly contentious issue. You know, as I said, in, in a country that's got lots of people that are really, really struggling just to heat the homes and put food on the table. Um, so I think that's the main thing. I think that's kind of getting people quite annoyed by the whole thing. Do you think the royals have gone far enough to explain why it has to cost this much and, and how they are slimming down? Well, they talk about, as you just said, you know, they talk about slim down and they talk about slim down coronation. And maybe it is, but it's still costing, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds. So it doesn't mean it's cheap necessarily. It's maybe just cheaper than what they would ideally like. There's been lots of talk about them slimming down over the years, you know, getting rid of key royals and and bringing it down to a core family. And that shows an attempt, but it doesn't really pan out. You know, they're still a hugely expensive institution um, with all of these. You know, they've never tried to sell land or sell palaces, for example. Um, So you begin to wonder if it's kind of just telling people what they want to hear rather than actually acting on that. Yet there is still strong support in the UK, at least, for the monarchy. Do Mm. you think they'll be hoping something like a coronation bolsters that support? Yeah, I think think that's definitely the goal. As with any uh, ceremony for the monarchy, I think the whole idea is to bolster support and to create a feeling of community. I think that's the kind of the main goal of this, the feeling like we're all in this together. You know, there was that news story about Charles getting people to swear the oath through the TVs, which is quite interesting. And, you know, you wonder, you know, how many of the people that live in the UK will actually be doing that and to what extent. Do you think that was a bit of a misstep? I mean, it played badly here. Uh, Put your hand up if you are intending to pledge your allegiance to the king at the coronation. There's very, look, one, two hands in the air. What if you're not... Uh, going to pledge allegiance. A few more hands in the air. Okay. Was it a mistake to ask people to pledge their allegiance to the king? It played badly here as well. I think. I, th- I think it was. 
dare I say, a bit tone deaf um, in terms of where people are with the monarchy, I feel. You know, they might want to kind of passively accept it going on. I think a lot of people are quite ambivalent, actually, about monarchy. I've talked about people who don't like it and people who do, but I think the majority of people are quite ambivalent. Um, but I guess to suggest, you know, things about oaths and swearing it and kind of and, and that kind of more you know, trying to get him to be accepted in different ways. I feel like that's kind of drawing attention, I guess, to the political aspects of a coronation in a way that, you know, takes it away from just being a bank holiday or, you know, just being a bit of entertainment. You're currently writing a book called What is Monarchy For? Are you any closer to an answer? (laughs) Well, I mean, my answer would always be that it's, you know, for its own power and for its own wealth and that's, that's mainly what it does. You know, it's for upholding certain systems, class systems in the UK, for example. So it's kind of, you know, it's always reproducing itself as an institution. Dr Laura Clancy, who researches the modern monarchy at Lancaster University. It was sold to governments and communities globally as the key to helping long-term smokers quit. But vaping is on the rise and in recent months there's been plenty of concern about the number of school students taking up the habit. What young people are telling me is that they can um, buy them online, they potentially can get hold of them under the counter. I've got four teenage boys and I think vaping is very dangerous and they all think it's kind of cool to do it. None of mine do it as far as I know. Over the last few years, there has been a growing black market for vapes and even the term black market probably makes them sound hard to get. But research from the Cancer Council suggests that teens who vape are getting access to them pretty easily online or at convenience stores. This week, the Federal Health Minister, Mark Butler, said that it was the biggest loophole in Australian healthcare history, announcing a broad vaping crackdown from banning single-use vapes to only allowing them with a prescription. This idea that they can be readily accessed by young people, deliberately targeted at them. They have pink unicorns on them. They are bubblegum flavoured. They are deliberately designed to be attractive to kids, and I'm determined to stop it. Under the legislation, the flavours and colours would also be restricted. But while nearly everyone seems to agree that the current system isn't working, some are worried that the black market may continue under the new laws. There is a lot of attention on vaping because it is quite a visible drug. When you use it, there's this kind of big plume of white vapour that comes out and it's easy to see. It's in the media all the time. Kids see all of that and they think, oh, that sounds interesting. I might just give that a go. Nicole Lee is a professor at the National Drug Research Institute at Curtin University. So from various data sources, there's probably about 5% of, 5 or 6% of the population who vape at least once a month. And a, a much smaller proportion of that will be vaping every day. Most of the people, including teens, currently vaping regularly were already smokers. They're either currently smoking, trying to quit, or ex-smokers who are trying not to go back to smoking. But we have also seen research that suggests that one in six Australians aged 14 to 17 years old has vaped. It's higher among 18 to 24s. And we've heard in the last few months about issues with them being found in schools. Teachers say it's an ongoing issue. Can you see why parents would be worried about vapes? Yeah, no, it is a concern. Um, That's absolutely a concern. We don't want young people picking up vapes for recreational purposes at all. 
in the same way that we don't want them to pick up cigarettes, smoking, and we don't want them to drink alcohol or take illicit drugs. The problem is that the current legislation just makes it easier for them to access it rather than harder. And therefore, we have seen a huge increase in young people trying vapes. But just trying them doesn't mean they're regularly using. And most adults and most teens who try vapes as with most other drugs as well, don't go on to use regularly. So this week the government's announced plans to tackle vaping. What are they planning to do? So they have slightly changed the legislation, loosened it up a little bit, but the problem is still that um, people do need to go through their GP to legally access vaping. It's not a problem in itself, but it's a problem in the current circumstance because the primary care system's under immense pressure. There's quite long waiting lists to get in to see most GPs and it's very expensive to see a GP. So what happens is that people uh, just go around that system and the black market has popped up as a result. And so do you have concerns that these changes won't actually reduce that black market? Yes, that I can't see how these changes will reduce the black market at all. So I think that everybody agrees that we want to improve access to vaping for people who need to quit smoking because it is a good smoking cessation tool. But we don't want kids having access to it. I don't think that those arguments are in question. The problem is that the current approach is not going to achieve those aims at all. It restricts access to people who are trying to quit smoking by making it so difficult to access. Therefore, a black market pops up and therefore young people have more access. We'd be much better to loosen the regulations a bit more to enable adults at least to access vapes who are trying to quit smoking. Does that mean that vaping would be available, say, in the same way cigarettes are in this country? Well, there's there's probably two broad pathways to regulation that are essentially mutually exclusive. You would choose one or the other. One of them, as you said, would be along the lines of cigarette tobacco, cigarette regulation that could be pretty much directly applied to vaping products. So that would include regulation about who it can be sold to, what age, who can make it, how it can be sold, what the packaging looks like, all of that stuff that applies to smoking tobacco. The other route would be the medicines route, which is where we're kind of, we're halfway along that pathway. But if we were to allow vaping nicotine and vaping products to be sold, say, through pharmacies like other nicotine replacement therapy as a cessation tool for people who smoke, um, that would be the second pathway. And then they would be under the same kind of regulations about who can buy it, where it can be sold and what it should look like and what, what's contained in it. But if you look at a country like um, I've seen a few times this week, people have mentioned New Zealand where they do allow vapes but they are heavily restricted and they have quite high levels of e-cigarette use, um, particularly in teens. There's kind of 18% using them daily. So isn't that a sign that maybe that's not the way forward? Well, it's still the case that most people who vape on a regular basis, I'm not talking about people who are just experimenting and trying a bit, um, people who 
use it on a regular basis, including teens, were already smokers or were at risk of smoking or are trying to cut down from smoking. So just seeing an increase in vaping is is not a problem in itself if it's accompanied by a reduction in smoking. And that is what we can see in countries that have introduced more accessible regulation around vaping. We've seen their smoking rates drop faster than those in Australia. We've been talking a lot about what the government is doing, but I think there is still plenty of concern, at least among the parents that I talk to, about kids vaping. What's your advice at a home level about what parents can do? Yeah, it's a really good question because I know a lot of parents and a lot of schools are kind of at at their wits' end about what to do about this and there really isn't a lot of information around for parents. We've got lots of information about alcohol, um, lots about uh, illicit drug use, but very little about vaping. But the same principles kind of apply. So the main thing is to open lines of communication to talk about why people vape and what the dangers might be with young people and be really realistic with them about that. And we know that when we give kids good information about all sorts of things, we know that they make better decisions. And that's what we've seen over, you know, when as we've improved drug education in schools, we've seen um, a, a sizable reduction in young people drinking. They drink a lot later. Um, a lot of them are not drinking at all. And so that, and that's a result of having sensible conversations with them about alcohol. And we need to have those same conversations with them about vaping because vaping isn't risk-free. So there are some potential health effects and some potential harms associated with vaping. But when you compare it to smoking, it's significantly less harmful. And so we're just trying to, from a public health perspective, balance the harms associated for people who smoke cigarettes. And when you look at it that way, it's much better for people to be vaping than for them to be smoking cigarettes. And it's still the case that more young people smoke tobacco cigarettes than they do vape. Nicole Lee, a professor at the National Drug Research Institute at Curtin University. The federal government will hand down its budget next week with plenty of people hoping for some relief as the cost of living rises. There are likely to be changes to a number of welfare payments, including the single parenting payment and JobSeeker. But the government is also warning that there won't be big cash handouts, saying it doesn't want to further fuel inflation. The Reserve Bank is clearly still worried about it, hiking interest rates again this week. Uh, we do have an announcement, David. Well, Roz, uh, the cash rate has increased by a quarter of a percentage point. It turns out money markets were wrong and I guess some economists turned out to be right. So what does that decision tell us about the state of the economy? Sol Eslake is an independent economist. Well, it tells us that the Reserve Bank views inflation as still unacceptably high, even though it's clearly peaked and is now heading in the right direction, and that it was going to take longer than the Reserve Bank thought appropriate to come back to the target range if there hadn't been a further tightening of monetary policy. But it's a reminder that the Reserve Bank thinks that growth in the Australian economy needs to slow significantly in order to bring 
aggregate demand, that is total spending by households, businesses and governments, into line with aggregate supply so that inflation does return to acceptable levels in a timely manner without expectations of persistently higher inflation becoming entrenched, which would be far more costly to undo than what we're experiencing in the, at the moment, difficult though that is. And obviously more hikes inevitably raise concerns about a recession. Now, RBA boss Philip Lowe is still optimistic that can be avoided, but what's your view? Well, I think it probably can, in part because growth will have some momentum from the considerable pickup in Australia's population in the period after COVID and our borders have been reopened again. We're seeing, I think, almost 400,000 people come to Australia in 2023, and that will probably be sufficient to avoid us experiencing the conventional definition of a recession as consecutive quarters of negative economic growth, but the government's likely to forecast, as the Reserve Bank already is, that growth in real GDP, that is economic growth, will be less than the growth in Australia's population. So in per capita terms, if you like, Australia may well experience a recession, even if we don't have the conventional yardstick of consecutive quarters of contraction in real GDP. And of course, some of the talk about a recession is is just semantics for people who are feeling the cost of living bite now. How hard does it make things for the government as they try to find a way to offer assistance to people in the budget next week? Well, I've got a fine balance to draw between meeting the pretty obvious social and, I dare say, political need to provide meaningful assistance to the most vulnerable members of our community who are really suffering, as you say, intense cost of living pressures, but without making that assistance so widespread that it leads to a boost in aggregate spending by Australian households that in turn forces the Reserve Bank to raise interest rates, in its view, even further than it already has, and thus increasing the risk of recession. Now, it would appear that the budget in the short term is going to be in better shape, both in the financial year that's about to end and in the financial year that is about to begin that had been foreshadowed last October. Two reasons for that. First, that higher commodity prices have generated a lot more company tax revenue from the government. And secondly, because employment growth has been stronger than forecast, despite the increases in interest rates, the unemployment rate has remained pretty close to its 50-year low of 3.5%. So there's more personal income tax being collected. And the government has foreshadowed some tax increases in the budget as well, increase in cigarette excise or tobacco excise, increases in taxes on multinational corporations, and increases in taxation on income generated by large superannuation balances. So the government will have some money to spend. The challenge will be to spend it in ways that don't excessively boost domestic spending to force the Reserve Bank's hand to raise interest rates again, but secondly also not to bake in longer-term increases in spending given the very significant longer-term spending pressures that are already arising from defence, from interest payments on the large amount of debt that governments now have, healthcare, aged care and the NDIS. We have already seen uh, the government suggest some changes will happen in the welfare space. Some payments will be changed and increased. How can any of those payments be raised without it being inflationary? 
Well, it depends on how widespread those increases are. And if there's to be an increase in the job seeker allowance, for example, which has been called for by many and for which I think there's a reasonably strong case, then that's probably not going to be material enough to prompt the Reserve Bank's hand to lift interest rates again, at least in the period immediately after the budget, if cash handouts or other increases in in social security benefits are larger and more widely spread of a sort that would materially boost aggregate household spending, then the Reserve Bank may feel that it has no choice but further to tighten monetary policy. But basically, I presume that if they are small increases, it's not like we're going to see people go out and buy flat screen TVs or, or something that becomes a true inflationary pressure, right? No, I think that's right. I think the assistance ought to be targeted to people who are really struggling to meet everyday essential items like food, rent, um, transport costs and those sorts of things, rather than uh, of the sort that would spark spending spray on consumer durables, of the sort we've seen when governments have made cash payments, large cash payments to a much broader range of households in the past. And that's why the government has to be much more careful with these things than it needed to be on the earlier occasions under previous governments when it's considered these kind of measures. When Anthony Albanese became Prime Minister, he said that under Labor, no one would be left behind. But how hard is that in reality with the current economic pressures on the budget and the pressures on the budget as we move forward? Well, it's difficult. It's inevitable that the budget will forecast, as the Reserve Bank is already forecasting, that real wages, that is wages minus consumer price inflation, will fall again this year. For That will be at least the second year in a row. So on average, Australians will be worse off. But in these particular circumstances, I think the government's priority is going to be to provide what assistance it can to those who are struggling most, those on the lowest incomes, those on minimum wages, those on social security benefits, who are the most vulnerable to increases in the cost of everyday goods and services that we've seen over the last 18 months. Independent economist Sol S. Lake. And that's our episode for this week. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe. This week is produced by Stephanie Smale, Nick Grimm, Sam Dunn and me, Madeline Jenner. Catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.